The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Hi, my name is Steve Finney and I am your ministry host. We hope that the Lord blesses you today as you listen to our podcast. Well, as you guys know, we do a uh, testimony time each week, and uh, today's my turn. Blessing of understanding what a testimony is is really where it starts because if we don't, as body members, realize how important our story is, which is supposed to be his story, um, we're just not going to do very much sharing. And one of the things that Janie struggled with after we met uh, a couple of years ago, we were talking yesterday about actually praying that we have been together longer than my life before. And it's just kind of a weird feeling to know that my pretty much my entire life Outside of a few years, I've been with my beloved wife. It was a great feeling. But she shared early on in our marriage that her testimony was boring. Because she didn't go through drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And uh, her husband has a very sordid past. And... The truth being said that any way that the power of the Holy Spirit moves inside of a believer, it's a transformational, powerful story that needs to be told. Because the drug addicts and gangsters are going to relate to me a little bit, whereas the people who have grown up in a church and learned to live the law are going to relate to Janie's story. So the story literally starts for me when I was born. And I was, from my perspective, I was completely rejected by life. I was born and immediately placed into a bubble. I was allergic to air. I was allergic to food, breast milk, regular milk, um, I was even allergic to human touch, the oils on their skin. And so I stayed in this bubble off and on consistently for five years. And my earliest memories, which is something I ask in counseling or discipleship, what's your earliest memory? Because typically that's where the enemy starts. As soon as you start to remember things is when he starts to do his deal. And my earliest memory was seeing little bubbles on the inside of my oxygen tent. And another memory I have is is uh, blurred visions. Obviously doctors and whoever it was that was approaching, you know, this oxygen tent. Keep in mind that I was uh, in and out of there for five years. So some of my memories were being formulated in this bubble. And then um, 
when I got out of this bubble and they brought me home, I was shocked with the reality of my, at the time, there was uh, two twin brothers and an elder sister. Um, they didn't care for me because of all the attention that I had to receive in this bubble. My father pretty much avoided visiting me, whereas my mother, having a mother's heart, she wanted to be by her sick baby. And that started my syndrome. I became a mama's boy. So the house itself, wherever we lived, and we literally kind of traveled the world because of my father being a military man, uh, we lived in lots of different houses and supposedly attended lots of different schools. Um, the house that we lived in became my refuge, became my bubble. And the goal was every so often I would try to be integrated into the school system and I would and I would get sick and you know the cycle. And um, what that developed on a positive side is I knew my mother's heart inside and out as her son. And a lot of kids when they grow up they don't really care to know their mother's heart. They see the mother as an authoritative figure and tell them what to do and the kids try to manipulate to get around those orders and you know how it kind of goes. And it's usually not until they get older and wiser that they start respecting their mother again. Well, I had a different childhood where I, I saw the pain that my mother was going through on a daily basis. And I started caring for my mother by crying with her, laughing with her, uh, helping her with cooking. You know, I became what the Bible classified, what God said about Jacob. Now, Esau was a what? He was a man of the field. And Jacob was what? The word classified him as a, as a boy of the tent. So Jacob was inside helping Rachel, his mother. Esau was outside probably helping his dad. And of course we know how those two were born, remember? So the key being, they were, they were supposedly fighting in the womb for who was going to be in first place. And Esau comes out first, and then Jacob, and the war begins. And so whether we want to agree with that or understand that or not, the truth of the matter is, uh, in the Hebrew, being in first place is huge. There's spiritual activity that goes on that we don't realize, and there is relational psychological stuff going on that we don't realize. But that story was a story that I was able to relate to because uh, Jacob was a boy of the tent, softer side of, of God. And Esau was a boy of the externals, and you see that all the way through their lives until they die. The problem with being a Jacob type is deception. 
when you're a blunt grunt type of man, you just kind of live life and trip through life and do what you got to do. Whereas the the little boys who become mama's boys adopt probably a side to life they probably shouldn't, and they become very deceptive. So this whole bubble thing for me caused me to um, hide in the bubble when I needed to. And it started out externally and later went to more of a mental bubble. And by the time I was um, probably right around junior high, I was completely detached and could not handle human relationships. But I actually wanted to hurt people. Thank God I never really hurt anyone. Uh, I just wanted what was in here shouted out here so someone would see that this boy's got some problems. Well, that's not what happened. My mother continued to protect me. And keep in mind, I went through 13 years of school not knowing how to read or write. That means there was someone in my life that would go to the school and say, you are passing my son. He will not suffer this rejection. And she did. I have many memories of her storming the doors of the school and walking out with a smile on her face. One time in second grade, I assumed that I was to go to third grade, so I First day of school, I go in, sit down in the third grade classroom. Teacher grabs me, hold by the back of the collar, and says, you're not smart enough for third grade. That quote has stayed with me my entire life. So she walks me into the second grade class and sits me at a desk in the second grade class. Next day, my mother stormed the door of the school. And, uh, and that was one battle they held their ground on. She did not win. So I had 13 years of school. I should have had none. Well, moving it all the way forward, the rejection between, you know, five years of age and high school uh, the list is very long, and that's why my mentors have encouraged me to write my autobiography, tie it in with these messages of identity in Christ, so that people can see that Finney's not just a communicator of the exchange life, the identity truths, but that he understands them from the inside out. So that's what I am in the process of doing. So... Thursday, as of Thursday, it was 389 pages because I am integrating all of the messages of the conference in through the testimony, so it's going to be a very unique autobiography. So when I got into high school, my brother and eldest sister were seniors. I was a freshman. As the rejection would, would occur, my brothers would come to my defense. And, you know, whether the, it was someone in my class or a sophomore or junior, uh, they had my brothers to deal with. So I saw one of my particular brothers as a protector. Felt very safe around him. A little too safe, probably. 
But what I didn't think through is that they were going to graduate. And I was going to have, you know, three years of no brothers around. Well, that's exactly what happened. There was a gentleman by the name of Gordy who uh, would stuff me in lockers, uh, beat me up. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've been beat up. And the list goes on and on and on. You know, one time I was even in study hall and I was standing at the window looking out into the parking lot and the uh, football team was turning my car upside down and putting it on its hood. I ran into the principal's office. He came into the study hall, looked out the window, and he said, quote, unquote, boys will be boys. And so no matter where I went, my perception anyway was, you know, why does everyone always want to kill me or destroy me or hurt me or, you know, it just was, in my mind, out of control. And I wasn't doing anything, at least from my perspective. Well, I didn't realize that these labels and these identity issues were a part of what God was forming in me to be a communicator of them. But kids don't know that when they're growing up, that their weaknesses are literally being used by a living God to form in them the primary message that God's going to focus on in their adult lives. So I'm standing on the stairway in the high school with all the rest of my classmates and the photographer who happens to be the school counselor who one year earlier brought my mother and I into his office and said, uh, your, your son, he's, I'm sitting right there, your son is mentally retarded and uh, he, you should never consider higher education and I, I just need to tell you this so you're not disappointed. He won't be going on the class day to school of choice and blah, 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 blah. Well, that didn't sit well with my mother at all. So she shared a few words with him, and we left. And she said to me, son... You are going to blah, blah, blah. And it was all her positive success stuff that mommies give. Well, by this point, I'm like, you're just an overprotective mother lying to me. I started to go down a very, very bad road and uh, started buying into the lies like never before. The battles with Gordy became more and more intense and my rage became more and more threatening. But for some reason, I did what my mother asked, and she said, turn the other cheek and pray for those who persecute you. Because you know, I got saved when I was uh, a sophomore in high school. It was a very dramatic conversion, but I had no one to disciple me. So from sophomore to the end of my junior year, <laughs> You know, there was a pretty big deterioration because no one was teaching me who I was. As I'm standing there, you know, in my gown and my cap with a little tassel on it, the photographer, who's the school counselor who said I was retarded, uh, said, uh, Steve, step down, please. So I stepped down. I didn't know what he wanted. He says, you're not graduating today. 
nor will you ever graduate. The principal was standing behind us and he heard the whole thing. And he pulls the photographer aside and I don't know what they were talking about, but the next thing I knew, the principal was putting me back in line. So I graduated that day, I walked the aisle, I got a diploma, I couldn't read. So the counselor kind of had a point, but what he didn't connect was, how in the world can I take his intelligence test if I didn't know how to read? So the label was a misnomer. Years later I went back to get the school files and found out I was officially labeled borderline retarded, which is kind of a ridiculous label because you can't evaluate someone who seriously can't read or write. So I went on into destruction, became a drug addict, drug dealer. I got involved in the mafia and did some very bad things. Got into showbiz. That helped, of course, until uh, a mafia man above me uh, decided to teach me a lesson. Back at the club one night, he brought me to the edge of my life. And it was that night, and here I am saved, of course, because I got saved in high school. I realized uh, God was speaking to me. It was time to look a different direction. With a lot of details in and around that time of my life, I get this letter from this lady. She shares about this job that's available, working with handicapped people. And the crazy thing about it, my worst day of rebellion, I would never reject a widow, orphan, an old person. I had this enormous amount of respect for most adults. When I saw a handicap, I thought that may be, that may be kind of cool because I'm retarded and I really believed I was retarded. That would be kind of the place for me to work is amongst my people. So I applied for the job and got the job scrubbing toilets on the 12 day shift. And I applied for a very arrogant position, Director of Community Services, and, and there's a whole story with that, but I'll save that for another day. But when I came out of the founder's office, there was a, this gal sent me the letter, was standing there signing her contract, and I looked at that gal and I said, I'm going to marry this woman. And I did. A couple of weeks later, I started pursuing the process of securing her as my wife. She's one that sent me the letter. She just knew me by way of my brother because her hometown was almost an hour away, so it was kind of weird I got this letter from her. But it was obviously God's sovereignty. So when I met Janie, my life really was completely different because instead of having so much around me of falling back into my old ways, I had a new environment set out for me. Her parents were, you know, became really parents to me, and God used them as a part of my healing process. And uh, the rest of the story is is uh, many years of being together and working through the gospel together.
and refining the process of really what God has called me to do. But in the midst, after she taught me read by using the Word of God, a friend of mine threw a book on my desk at this handicapped village place we were working at, and it was called The Handbook to Happiness. And he says, ah, this is something that you would like. And he was an MSW, Master of Social Work kind of guy. So I thought, if Bill doesn't like it, I'm going to like it. Because <laughs> I was all about the Bible. So that's all I really knew. I didn't have any other education. Remember, I was retarded. So I take this book, and it becomes the first book I read from cover to cover. Well, the gentleman who wrote this book, long story short, becomes my dad. And through the years have grown together in you know, ministering the identified truths. There's over uh, 6,000 ministries that have been started through this man's ministry. And ours is one of them, as you know. Many other authors who have been discipled by him are birthed out of this book, Handbook to Happiness. Because the identity truths were not really being shared that much in churches. It was still the law, performing, and do the right thing, and whatever. So it was a freeing message. Now the grace movement has gone so wild that it's turned emergent. So um, our goal in our ministry, and my goal as as an individual believer in Christ, is to advance Christ in you, and to teach really what that means. But little did I realize until a handful of years ago that when you are actually teaching authentic grace to a gracealistic society, the rejection's worse. So my love for the Muslims and reaching out to the Muslims, I'll take rejection from a Muslim any day. The I hate you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to, you know. I'll take that any day than these fake Christians that walk up to you with a smile on their face with a dagger in their hands. And that's the gracilistic church we have today. We kill our own. We finish off our own. So the identified truth is not popular because uh, it says you judge me. All of these things that are coming out of our Facebook church are uh, about accepting anyone and their lifestyle worldwide. So your God's my God, you know. There's all this stuff going on because of grace. And Paul said something rather significant. He said, should I sin that grace may abound? That's what's happened to our culture. Now we have homosexual pastors. We have, you know, uh, universalist pastors. We have Muslims and Christians or, you know, the same God. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And that's what it, an overly gracialistic society will do to the church. My testimony is from a horrid background of identity labels. And now as an adult, my mission is very clear. I'm immovable in it. I want it on my stone, you know, after I'm gone, about promoting the identity truths of the indwelling life of Christ. 
But you got to understand, guys, is when people start realizing they've been missing the boat on the indwelling life of Christ, they only have two choices. To love you and walk with you or to get the dagger out. You see, fighting someone with the law is easy. If you meet a legalistic Christian, you kind of look at him and like, man, you just don't get it. And you let him bypass. But if you are talking to someone who understands who they are in Christ, no matter what they do or say to you, isn't going to rock your world. And that really makes people angry. Because the goal of most humans is to rock someone's world in a positive way or in a negative way. I, of course, will be sharing bits and pieces. You know, the more I preach, the more of those stories come out. I was going to say you neglected to say that all of this happened in the, in the midst of severe alcoholism with your dad. That was a huge part of it. I have six siblings, uh, five siblings. One of them ha- has already died, but they all have memories of my father hurting them in some way, and I don't. For some reason, probably because of being a mama's boy, uh, I have no memories of my father hurting me. So I had a very deep love for my dad. I would, when he would get drunk, I would help him to bed. When he got up in the morning, I would clean, uh, change his uh, urine-soaked sheets. I would oftentimes have breakfast for him. I did that until he died had that kind of love for my dad because I think I understood him uh, as I did my mother and I think a way that the other siblings didn't take the time to do it. But the stories with my father are horrid. He told my mother, when it comes to my last breath, make sure Stephen's at my side. Well, that room was packed with grandkids, kids. When he was... In those last five, ten minutes, got called forward to be at his side. I knew what my father was communicating early on by requesting that. And as soon as I grabbed a hold of his hand, I had a vision that my father wouldn't let go. He was kind of looking at Jesus, and you know, I whispered in his ear a commitment I made to him about having a ministry of reconciliation, and then he died. And so there are so many details, it's ridiculous. But yeah, all this was birthed through violence and horrid labels, stuff that's never worth mentioning. And I was so used to uh, status quo, what you do, Christianity, that when I met Steve, he had come back to the Lord like three months earlier when we went to the movie hiding place with Corey Ten Boom. And so I didn't see him like his past. I saw him as, this guy is so refreshing. I mean, like guys I knew, guys I was friends with, yeah, they were Christians, but nobody ever talked about it. Nobody ever shared their, you know, faith or, you know, whatever. So Steve was like, he was a yacker. <laughs> so I was like, wow, this guy's awesome. So we connected over the Lord from the get-go, you know, so that was um, 
I mean, so he, as we got to know each other, you know, I, I learned all the stories and everything, but... Got to see a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I never, you know, I never saw him like he saw himself, so I saw him like I perceived him to be. Just a little more immature version of this stick card, isn't it? <laughs> Everything had to be done so uniquely by the Lord. When I was suffering all that rejection in school, there was one memory in particular. Fourth grade, I'm sitting there. Because I was allergic to the environment, which I still am today, actually, um, I would have diarrhea attacks, sometimes once or twice a day. Nowadays, if I have one once every couple days, you know, I'm doing well. And fourth grade sitting there, of course, knowing it's coming on, I raised my hand, asked the teacher if I could be dismissed. She said no, because class was going to be out in five minutes. You can wait. I raised my hand again. I said, teacher, I really got to go. She said no. I raised my hand the third time and said, Teacher, I really have to go. And she said, You'll wait. And of course, you know what happened. The aroma filled the room and the rejection kicked in and she dismisses the entire class because of the aroma. And she looks at me and she says, Go clean yourself up. How? <laughs> you know what I mean? My clothes are, you know... So I go down the locker room and take my clothes off and I wash them out and, you know, whatever, clean up the best I can. And I get on the bus with wet pants and the rejection starts and all the kids went to the back of the bus. I have the whole front of the bus my, to myself and I'm being humiliated. And, you know, there's just this horrible experience. I get home. My brothers harass the daylights out of me because they're only, you know, a couple grades ahead of me. So they heard what was going on. Who couldn't? In fact, when I went back to visit a couple of years ago, they were still talking about it. And so it was a horrible day. And the next day I thought things would be better. Oh, no. Because of the stories getting around, that day was uh, pretty disastrous. So the, the teacher dismisses us for, for recess. And there was one kid in my class that hung with me no matter what was said. And Brad and I are running out to the ball diamond and I sensed something up in the sky and I looked up and there was this guy that was in the sky with long hair, white robe, and the face was so bright I couldn't see his eyes or mouth. And Brad said, I put my hand on his chest, stopped him, and said, do you see him? And he said, no. And, of course, the figure's gone. We go out to the ball diamond, and I can remember running around to every plate, keep looking up like there's something here. And nothing. We were coming back into the school after the bell rang, and I sensed it again. Sure enough, I saw his face, his hair, his white robe uh, from the knees up. And I said, Brad, look, there he is. Didn't see him. And went back into the classroom. I can remember sitting there staring out the window, just kind of waiting to see him again. Fourth grade. I didn't get saved till I was a sophomore. So 
When I did get saved, I'm sitting in a popcorn stand working for my uncle and this kid walks up to the door, bangs on the window and I open up and say, may I help you? Expect give him some popcorn and, you know, soda, whatever. And, and he says, do you know that Jesus Christ loves you? And I won't tell you what I said to him, but I was a pretty vulgar kid by this point. Very mean. And shut the window. And uh, <laughs> the stupid smile on his face. After saying all that stuff to him, he just had this big smile on his face. And he walks away. I'm like, idiots in the world? I mean... Keep in mind, my, my father was the son of a great preacher, a church performer. And he would not allow the name of Christ, unless you want to swear, he would not allow the name of Christ of Christianity spoken in our house. So, next day, at 3.05, knock on the window, didn't recognize him, and he had this great big smile on his face. I said, may I help you? And he said, did you know that Jesus Christ loves you? And I said some words to him again, finishing with, don't you ever come back here again. Smile stays on his face and walks away. That night I got to my aunt's house. Keep in mind, she's the daughter of this preacher. And they're kind of living out the Christian life, whereas my father wouldn't. And I asked her, who is this Jesus Christ? And I don't even know what she said to me because it didn't stick. So I get down in the basement where they had the bed where I was sleeping while I was staying with them. And, and I got plagued by faces coming out of the, the walls. Demonic faces. And then... I can only tell you what my experience was. And all these years being in ministry, I've talked to many who have had this experience. But I was pinned to the bed. Couldn't move my shoulders, my feet, my hands. Couldn't move. Paralyzed. And then it was my throat. And it was like someone's hand was pushing on my throat. But there was one word that came across my lips. Jesus. I didn't even know who he was. If it wasn't for this kid. So I kept saying, Jesus, 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 for a long time. And then my shoulders came up, hands, feet, and, the, and I went to sleep. Next morning I got up, told the story to my aunt. She's looking at me like, well, he is on drugs. And so went to work, and uh, now I'm waiting for like 3.05, you know what I mean? Sure enough, knock on the window. I didn't even bother to open the window. I opened the door, and I grabbed a hold of him, drug him in, sat him down in the chair, and said, Who is this Jesus? And he said, I was just sent to uh, say that he loved you. He gets up and he leaves. So after I was done with the week, I went home and came in, asked my mother who Jesus was. She, she said, you know, some choice words. She wasn't saved yet. And 
said, go talk to the preacher downtown. So I did. Knocked on his door. It was on a Saturday. He came to the door and I said, do you know who this Jesus is? And can you tell me who he is? He's like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so he runs and gets his Bible. We walk over to the church. He takes me to the front of this empty church, shares the gospel with me, and we pray. And that's when I realized that Jesus died for me. But it wasn't until I met Chuck that I realized that I died with him. Because you won't understand the identity truths until you realize you died with him. But God uses all those to develop our story, which is his story. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at iomamerica.org. That's iomamerica.org.